our old friend, friend of the pod, uh, Dr. Jeff Wilson from Harvard, has published the landmark work, Shakespeare <laughs> and Game of Thrones. And when I invited him to talk to me on the podcast about his new book, he said, uh, uh, not only uh, will I talk to you, but I'm going to arrange a roundtable of fellow scholars. And he gave me a nine-point agenda for how this conversation <laughs> will go. So, uh, Jeff, I say to you with total appreciation and respect, leave it to an academic to overthink these things. Yeah, you know what? I, I think there's probably a perfect overlap uh, between people who enjoy Shakespeare's history plays, people who enjoy Game of Thrones, and people who plan daily itineraries on family vacations, and I'm one of those people. <laughs> <laughs> Hashtag organized fun for the win. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, whatever it is, wherever you are. I'm Austin Titchener, one-third of the Reduced Shakespeare Company, and you're listening to this week's Reduced Shakespeare Company podcast, now in its 15th year, number 734, Shakes of Thrones. Dr. Jeffrey R. Wilson, who spoke with me last year about his book, Shakespeare and Trump, has now written a much more fun book to talk about, Shakespeare and Game of Thrones. Joining us in our discussion of these two cultural behemoths are two cultural scholars. Dr. Kavita Mudan Finn has published widely on medieval and early modern literature, Shakespeare and fan studies, though she is perhaps best known outside academia for her work on Game of Thrones and Hannibal. She has taught Literature, History, and Gender Studies at Georgetown University, George Washington University, University of Maryland and College Park, Simmons University, and most recently, MIT, and she is Senior Editor at The Public Medievalist. Dr. Shiloh Carroll's book, Medievalism in A Song of Ice and Fire and Game of Thrones, was published by Boydell and Brewer in 2018. She teaches at Tennessee State University, and she's the associate editor of Slayage, the Journal of the Whedon Studies Association. We began our conversation with Jeff Wilson telling us about how his book, Shakespeare and Game of Thrones, came to be. Yeah, so, so one of the things I love about this book is it comes out of classroom conversations that I've had with uh, students. And so we studied Shakespeare and Game of Thrones uh, for two years in my Why Shakespeare course, which grapples with the, the playwright's uh, ongoing prominence in the modern world. So I assigned all three parts of the Henry VI plays, which I recognize that that's questionable judgment. But one of the things that, that I uh, asked students to do was to engage with uh, Shakespeare's history plays in the way that we engage with Game of Thrones and other pop culture and to engage with Game of Thrones in the way that we engage with serious literature like Shakespeare's history plays. Uh, so one of the one of the most memorable things that they did was, I can't believe I'm saying this, uh, they, they played Mary F. Kill with Shakespeare's first tetralogy, which is when you get, you know, three people and you have to pick <laughs> who to marry, who to F, and, and who to kill. <laughs> and the, the, the best answer that I got was Queen Margaret for all three. Marry Queen Margaret, F Queen Margaret, kill Queen Margaret. <laughs> yes. Yeah. She's so 100% uh, correct. <laughs> she is everything in those plays. She's the reason to watch those plays, read those plays, really. Um, so, so at the end of uh, kind of studying the Shakespeare and Game of Thrones together, we still had this really pressing question about how uh, 
George R. R. Martin's Game of Thrones are related to Shakespeare's history plays because both are based on the Wars of the Roses. But was this a case kind of of analogy or of influence, which is to say, uh, was is this two different authors responding to the same source material and sometimes there's parallels and sometimes there's divergences or was Martin aware of Shakespeare's version of the Wars of the Roses? Did he have it on his desk when he was writing his stories? Um, how do these two texts kind of relate? And this is where I uh, came into to contact with the amazing scholarship of, of Dr. Finn and Dr. Carroll. Uh, so with, with Dr. Finn, I was uh, familiar with the, the work that she had done on uh, women and Shakespeare's histories and Plantagenet more women more generally. But then I really kind of uh, had my eyes opened by this work that she's done on, on Shakespearean fandom and, and uh, Game of Thrones fandom. And then with uh, Dr. Carroll working on these uh, this idea of medievalism, that really just helped me to kind of crack this nut of this really deep and yet still indirect way in which Martin was connected with Shakespeare and with uh, the history of the Wars of the Roses. Well, this is it's fabulous because it's a great way to enter both the Henry the Sixth plays and an appreciation of, of, of Game of Thrones. But um, um, Dr. Shiloh Carroll, Dr. Kavita Finn, can either one of you tell us whether um, an appreciation of, of, of Shakespeare's history plays will lead us to a better understanding or appreciation or forgiveness of the finale of Game of Thrones? Better understanding, yes. Appreciation, perhaps no. Um, I'd say in part because the history plays show us what the kind of story that could have been told about a character like Daenerys. Um, and it's a very different story from what we ended up getting. And in fairness, Shakespeare um, stumbled over some of his endings as well. So Dr. Carroll, how did you get into this relationship between these two massive works? Basically, my PhD stuff was on how does fantasy literature handle the medieval? And I wrote my, my, my dissertation on um, George R. R. Martin and Marion Zimmer Bradley and Tamara Pierce. And then went, okay, so to publish the book, which you are supposed to do once you finish the PhD, I went, let's take out everything but George R. R. Martin, since he's the hot stuff right now, and essentially rewrote it so it was just focusing on Martin. And that's how I got interested in, in medievalism also was fantasy literature came to it, honestly. Kavita, how did you get into this? Similarly, to be honest, I first encountered Arthuriana when I was about five years old through Lerner and Lau's Camelot, which is a medievalist text if ever there was one. T.H. White is constantly melding sort of his world and the world of medieval England. Um, and there's all kinds of anachronisms in there, but also it sort of works with its own internal logic. Um, so that's how I sort of, that and also Disney Sleeping Beauty, uh, which I happened to write an, a piece about uh, somewhat recently. Uh, that's what got me into medievalism when I was just a child. Um, and uh, I never got away from it. I read a historical novel about the Wars of the Roses when I was 13 and wrote my PhD thesis on the Wars of the Roses 10 years later. <laughs> So and so and you're talking about the Wars of the Roses and also are also Arthurian also Arthurian legends. So we're talking about uh, both uh, both uh, factual and 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 fictional interpretations of 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 the history. Um, yes, I'm fascinated by this stuff. Um, I find I think that history is the greatest source for 
source material for anything. And and I, you will never ever hear me use the term fan fiction in a disparaging way. Because okay. um, that feels to me like what Shakespeare was writing. Shakespeare feels like he was writing fan fiction about his own English history. Am I right about that? Yes, he was. <laughs> Um, I mean, he was writing it in a somewhat different way than we would define fan fiction now, because I at least have argued that fan fiction, uh, I and others have argued, um, that fan fiction is as much about building a relationship between the author and the reader that, as it is a genre of fiction. But in terms of just taking existing source material, transforming it, playing with it, moving it around, emphasizing different things, de-emphasizing different things, um, from that perspective, yes, Shakespeare is writing transformative fiction. Um, and he is transforming between media, transforming between time periods, all kinds of fun stuff like that. Is there a relationship between people approaching, um, coming to Shakespeare from a Game of Thrones perspective versus coming to Game of Thrones from a Shakespeare perspective? Is there a, is there a one-to-one understanding of the differences and similarities between the two uh, corpuses? I know a bunch of people who came to Game of Thrones from Shakespeare. Um, which I think is probably the lesser, uh, the, the less common of the two. Um, and it was very interesting watching that happen because Game of Thrones premiered on television in 2011. And um, there were, there was sort of this interesting movement in the Shakespeare fandom where people started noticing it and people started hearing about it, um, especially the Wars of the Roses stuff. And there was a whole subsection of the Shakespeare fandom that I was interacting with that suddenly started reading the game of the, the uh, Song of Ice and Fire books. Um, so there's a lot of interesting overlap that happened. Um, a lot of interesting fan works got made. Um, and there is there are still conversations that happen about it. But um, from a student, from a teaching perspective, it was definitely more of the opposite. Uh, people coming to Shakespeare via Game of Thrones. Yeah, and, and I was probably one of those uh, people who came from Shakespeare world and never really had uh, much exposure to, to fantasy literature um, and, and, and the way that Dr. Finn and, and Carol do. Um, but my mother recommended the show to me and then I watched the first episode of Game of Thrones and I said, really mom, Are, is, is everything okay? Do we need to talk about anything? <laughs> and I, I knew I was gonna have to kind of um, you know, watch the show out of a sense of professional obligation. And then that grew into a sense of, uh, you know, excitement over the middle seasons of the, the show. And then that kind of tilted back into a sense of professional obligation as we got to the end of the seasons. <laughs> Hi, this is Mia Gosling, creator of Shakespeare webcomic Good Tickle Brain, and you're listening to the Reduced Shakespeare Company podcast. Where can you RSC the RSC? Right now, the only place to see the remote Shakespeare Company is online. We've created a brand new page at our website, ReducedShakespeare.com, and a playlist on our YouTube page, where right this second you can watch us perform many of our epic abridgments from the comfort of your own shelter. You can also grab your own copy of Pop-Up Shakespeare, written by me and Reed Martin and beautifully illustrated by Jenny Mazels. It's on sale worldwide, and you can find links to independent bookstores in the U.S. and the U.K. on our website. Website. Now back to my conversation with Dr. Kavita Mudon Finn, Dr. Shiloh Carroll, and Dr. Jeffrey R. Wilson about the relationship between William Shakespeare and George R.R. R. Martin's Game of Thrones. Mm-hmm. 
Austin, uh, yes. let me let me kind of jump in here because I, I had a question for you um, as, as sort of the representative of acting world here for us. So <laughs> one of the things that, that I was able to do for this book was to interview some of the folks who have acted in both Shakespeare and in Game of Thrones. And to me, it's really fascinating kind of in the context of you know, probably the dominant 21st century uh, motion picture um, genre is is uh, sci-fi, is fantasy, are, are these kind of heightened supernatural worlds. And, uh, and, and with the actors that I spoke to, one of the uh, kind of fascinating lines of thought that, that, that emerged was that acting in Shakespeare in these kind of elevated tragedies that are from these medieval royal world that none of us really have any context with, that doing that kind of acting, the, 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 the high verse about important matters of state kind of prepares you for some of these otherworldly acting genres that we see happening right now in the 21st century. Um, I'm, I'm just wondering if as, as a, a Shakespearean actor, as you kind of look at some of these genres, do you see any sort of uh, lines of connection there? Um, yeah, the, the, the big, that was fascinating to me to discover years ago that the, the actors that, uh, they tended to hire on Star Trek were largely, um, theater-based and heavily Shakespearean experienced, Shakespeareanced, um, because it's this facility with elevated text and, and not elevated in a qualitative sense, but elevated in a kind of a quantitative sense in the sense of, um, these words don't mean a goddamn thing, but I'm going to invest them with power <laughs> and truth uh, in, the in, in the hopes that they convey that to an audience, even though it's wildly made up and imagined. Um, it was that was a fascinating part of your book, Jeff, about talk your interview with Anton Lesser, for instance, who I forget what he... Um, I forget. I forget what character, what the name of his character was in Game of Thrones, but I just saw his uh, Troilus from the BBC Shakespeare Troilus and Cressida, a very young Anton Lesser. Um, it's it's fascinating how young actors that I've worked with years ago um, um, would uh, uh, turn up their noses at the idea of children's theater or make believe when in fact some of our greatest actors have have do exactly that with game of thrones and with shakespeare it's an investment in something that's that's on its surface seems like it could be ridiculous but when enacted with you know Con talent and you know conscience just becomes enormously powerful and popular. Yeah, that's that's great. Well, and I love what I have loved about this connection is that there there is a there is a full circle sort of movement to it in that the Henry the Sixth play is inspired or or yeah fed George R R Martin when he was creating Game of Thrones, and in return the popularity of Game of Thrones inspired the Hollow Crown series. And now every time I read a Shakespeare history play, I wish that it was not done as a two hour film or even a three to four hour stage production, but as a 10 to 12 episode series. It feels like Shakespeare's plays are so uh, uh, crowded with incident, in the words of Oscar Wilde, um, that they deserve, they deserve six, eight, 10, 12 episodes to cover an entire play. That would be amazing. <laughs> <laughs> that would be amazing. 
I wish I knew more people in television because I'd be pitching the hell out of that now. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, I, my, my feeling is that we don't need to figure out how to cut Hamlet down into two hours. But now that we've got a, a venue like Netflix that has these 10 hour seasons, you know, um, we have the opportunity to kind of expand that with all the visuals that come along with film storytelling and, and tell, tell the story of Hamlet across the span of 10 hours. So when you guys go to uh, uh, academic conferences or, or conventions, who are you most afraid of? Shakespeare fans or Game of Thrones fans? Depends. <laughs> Depends on what I'm talking about. Oh, okay. <laughs> who, yeah, who, get, who gets more easily um, defensive about arguments made on a certain topic? I find with Game of Thrones, you can get it from both directions. You've got the medievalists who are like, why are you taking this tripe so seriously? And then you've got the, the Game of Thrones fans who yell at you for leaving stuff out or not liking their favorite character or something. Yeah. Or being critical about Game of Thrones. Yeah. And my it, my sort of Game of Thrones fandom experience is a little bit weird because I came to it through the books years and years and years and years ago. So before I it was hit. Sort of in, yeah, before it was. Yeah. In 2002, actually, I've been waiting for book five, book six for a very long time. So you're the comic book nerd from The Simpsons. Uh, scholar yes. of this. Okay, got it. <laughs> it it's, it's sad, but true, yes. Um, to the point where actually the fans that I am most frightened of running across right now are the ones who are currently in an uproar about the casting rumors for House of the Dragon, which just came out earlier this week. Uh, the rumors did. The show isn't going to come out till I think next year or the following year, but um, the casting rumors just came out. And that end of fandom has just gone up in flames for the past, I think, 72 hours or so. Um, aren't, aren't we excited? We've got a doctor in there. Matt Smith <laughs> is going to be there. I know, right? I think it's going to be interesting. I, 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 have, I have very weird expectations for it because the text is completely different. Um, in fact, I had uh, an interesting idea about it this morning, which is that the relationship between HBO's House of the Dragon and the source material on which it is based, which is um, one full-length book, one encyclopedia, and a couple of novellas, is actually very close to the relationship between Shakespeare and his chronicle sources, because it's not a novel. None of them is a novel. They're all sort of faux chronicle, super dodgy historiography, like all of this stuff. There's barely any dialogue. We don't know anything about the characters. There is so much creative freedom that the screenwriters for the series have. And on the one hand, I'm excited to see what they do with it. On the other hand, I look at the end of Game of Thrones and I think, oh, dear. Uh, so I honestly don't know. I have my my expectations are to not have expectations. That, that's probably the wisest thing that's been said in any <laughs> of my podcasts ever. <laughs> That's it for this week's Reduced Shakespeare Company podcast. You can find Dr. Jeffrey Wilson's book, Shakespeare and Game of Thrones, wherever books are sold. But it's priced for the academic market, so it ain't cheap. But there's no shame in checking it out of your local library because it's a fascinating read. You can also find it in digital formats for around 17 bucks. And for you Buffy fans, you can find more information about the journal Slayage at WhedonStudies.tv. Then send us your version of the Wars of the Roses via email to feedback at ReducedShakespeare.com. You can also find us and interact with other fans on our dedicated podcast page on 
on Facebook at RSE Podcast, on Instagram at Reduced Shakespeare Company, or on my preferred platform on Twitter at Reduced. You can also follow me on Twitter at Austin Titchener, and you can follow Dr. Kavita Mudan Finn on Twitter too at KVM Finn, and you can follow Jeff Wilson on Twitter at Dr. Jeffrey Wilson. Thanks, as always, to first of his name, Matthew Croak, Web Services by Ginger Power Limited, music by John Weber and Garage Band. Our random fan shout-out this week goes to Mark Smith. No reason, it's just random. Special thanks to Mia Gosling, creator of the world's greatest and possibly only Shakespearean stick figure webcomic, Good Tickle Brain. Check out her fantastic website at goodticklebrain.com. And finally, thanks very much to you for listening. Please stay safe, stay home, and keep your masks on. Here's to a much improved 2021. I'm Austin Titchener, 734-2202 of the Reduced Shakespeare Company. This has been a fascinating conversation, and um, I just want to thank all of you representatives from House Shakespeare for talking to me. Thank right. you. Thank it's you. It's been great. This podcast is a production of the Reduce Shakespeare Company. Reducing expectations since 1981. Go to reduce for performance dates, actor bios, email newsletters, and so much less. And so much less. And so much less. And so much less. And so much less.